This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we're here with another episode. We're here again. It's happened again. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm kind of liking this these intros that we're doing. Like, I think it gives us a chance to, you know, hang mingle. out. Mingle with each other. Because lately it's been kind of like we're like roommates or something. <laughs> yeah. Things have been hard lately. Like mentally. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I think it's just a lot with like kids and stuff and sports yeah. and everything. I mean, we have other jobs too. So it's like we have jobs, we have podcasts, we have kids, we have sports, we have all these different things. Well, this like, is like our fun time. Yeah, it's pretty good. And I think I'm ready for a pumpkin spice latte. I haven't got one yet uh, because it is September. I don't like pumpkin spice. Really? It oh. gets stuck on my tongue and I got to like brush my tongue, brush my teeth and oh, or, or have gum. It. Like I have to have gum ready. I love the whole fall thing. I love everything fall. The candles, the orchards, the pumpkins. What candles? Oh, like pumpkin spice candles? Like Yeah, like from Bath and Body Works, like the apple. Uh, they make my eyes itchy. You know, I get really, my throat gets itchy, but it's so worth it. <laughs> Is it it's worth it? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely okay. worth it. I like fall, though. Fall is awesome. I like Halloween. It's probably my favorite season. So, like, in our town, we have a witch contest, and I am, like, so stoked. I think you could win a witch contest. I think I'm really going to try. There's a cackling contest. Cackling. Me and my, I guess, sister-in-law, like, we've been practicing, and I think we're going to we're gonna give it a go. You should get some, like, green face paint and, like, you know, go all out. Yeah, right? and I my nose has been broke, like, probably, I don't know, five times. Fifteen just times. Fifteen, yeah, because it's just the luck of the draw. So you got, like, a nice little witch kink. Yeah, and I think I'm going to take advantage of it because I can't afford surgery, so I might as well just use it to my advantage. What if we win? <laughs> I might win. I don't know what you could win, but I was thinking, actually, of dressing up as the green witch from the Wizard of Oz, and then we have a black pug and dressing him up as a monkey, like one of the monkeys. Do you remember when we pronounced um, Greenwich, green witch? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think we still got comments about that. Like, oh, my God. And then we posted that uh, that meme. It was like, it was like, sorry. <laughs> sorry about the Greenwich. 
We meant to say Greenwich. We're not from there. Connecticut has some weird names, though. I gotta, I gotta say, it's like they're all kind of weird. Yeah. Are you ready for this week's episode? I am. It's a sad one, though. It is pretty sad. It's pretty rough. Um, so just be warned that it does involve a child. So if you're a little um, iffy about those episodes, maybe skip this one. But it is definitely an interesting episode. Yeah, for sure. I think it's an important one, too. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump in. So over the years, we have discussed hundreds of homicides with you, from scorned lovers to psychopaths. And many of the murderers that appeared in our episodes carry out their heinous crimes with similar, somewhat primal motives. Well, today, we will dive into the details of a mass murder with a very unusual motive, including inventors, estranged family, and a deep-seated grudge. The crime that we will discuss in this episode left the Lickness family in utter horror after a quest for revenge ended in tragedy. Our story takes place in Calgary, a city in the Canadian province of Alberta. Although Calgary is the largest city in Alberta, the locals maintain a small-town culture. The city nicknamed Cowtown is known for its prairies and cowboy spirit. Many compare it to the Western American metropolis, Denver, Colorado. Local residents Alvin and Kathy Lickness embodied the small-town spirit of Calgary. Having lived there for decades, they were described by friends and family as the backbone of their community. They were awesome grandparents who seemed very involved with their family. Alvin loved to snow ski, water ski, play hockey, and coach soccer. A man of adventure, Alvin also took up flying lessons, skydiving, and scuba diving. Pretty adventurous. Yeah, he's done many things that I probably will never do in my life. However, while the 66-year-old man loved an adrenaline rush, he was also quite the intellect. You see, Alvin was a modern-day inventor. He owned many patents under a family business and was in the constant pursuit of new ideas. And Alvin would listen intently to his friends and family, identifying common household problems that might inspire a new contraption. This creative passion for invention was shared with his wife, Kathy. And speaking of Kathy, Alvin never missed a chance to compliment his wife. He boasted about her beauty inside and out. And anyone who knew Kathy knew that they would always have a place at her table if they ever needed a helping hand. Kathy was described as the mother goose of her family. Warm, lively, homey, there was nothing Kathy couldn't help you with, even if it was just to tell you where you left your keys. She was always on call for childcare, pet sitting, something wholesome to eat, or a ride across town. You always knew where you stood with Kathy and that you were always welcome no matter where you'd come from or who you were. Where Alvin was an outdoorsman, Kathy was somewhat of an artist, pursuing certificates in web design, graphic design, and online publishing. On top of this, Kathy was even a licensed realtor. It goes without saying that Kathy loved to keep busy. Nothing was more exciting to her than diving headfirst into a new project, whether it was crafting for the holidays or cooking for a family in need. Alvin and Kathy had three children of their own, Jeff, Alan, and Jennifer, and they had many grandchildren. And by 2014, their daughter Jennifer had three children of their own with her husband, Rod O'Brien. 
They had an 11-year-old named Luke, a 5-year-old named Nathan, and a 1-year-old named Max. Jennifer had a house full of boys and everything that came with it, but she wouldn't have it any other way. There was lots of love, lots of laughter, and lots of noise, but there was also a lot of support. Whenever the O'Briens needed a helping hand with their boys or five minutes of peace, Grandma and Grandpa Lickness were always right around the corner. And I definitely know how it feels with a house full of boys and needing that five minutes of peace. I'm not a boy, I'm a man. But yeah, it's pretty loud here. It's a little chaotic. (laughs) Well, on June 29th, 2014, the tables turned for the loving couple. That day, it was Alvin and Kathy who needed support from their family. They had just sold their home in Calgary where they had raised all three of their children, and they were planning on moving to Alberta's capital, Edmonton. However, they didn't plan on spending much time in their new home in Edmonton, as they had also bought a condo in Mexico. For them, it was time to downsize. Alvin and Kathy had decided to hold an estate sale that day, keeping only the essentials and, of course, a few sentimental items. Now, on the day of the sale, Jennifer weighed her options, deciding whether or not she should bring her boys to her mother's house to help out. After some thought, she decided that she would let her boys choose. They could come with her to help their grandma Kathy at the estate sale, or they could go to the zoo. And while most kids would jump at the chance to see exotic animals in their natural habitat, and if they were good, maybe visit the gift shop for a novelty stuffed animal, five-year-old Nathan was different. He loved his grandparents so much that he chose to spend the day with them at the estate sale instead. It's unclear what 11-year-old Luke had decided to do that day, but one-year-old Max tagged along with his mother and brother, Nathan. You gotta be a pretty cool grandma if your grandkids picking, you know, an estate sale instead of the zoo. Like, there's nothing cool in an estate sale for a kid. Yeah, it sounds like being with their grandma was one of their favorite things to do. That's so cool. Yeah. Now, almost as soon as they walked through the doors, their grandpa, Alvin, scooped up Nathan and took him to the local playground. And meanwhile, Kathy and Jennifer managed the garage sale. And they were quite successful. There were over 30 customers stopping by to shop that day. When Alvin and Nathan came back from the playground, it was time for something to eat. So the family headed inside and they huddled around the kitchen table, enjoying each other's company over a pile of Chinese takeout containers. Above the table on the wall hung a sign that said, live well, laugh often, love always. It's like the tattoo on my chest. What does your tattoo say again? I forget. (laughs) Life is love. Yeah, exactly. It's always a good reminder. (laughs) Maybe I should add some more words. You could. Yeah, we can get it redone. Now, at some point during the dinner, Nathan asked his mom, Jennifer, if they could all stay the night at his grandparents' house. Now, Jennifer had Max with her, who was still only one at the time. But she knew that Kathy and Alvin wouldn't be in town much longer, so she agreed to stay that night. And with that, Jennifer, Nathan, and Max all settled in for a sleepover at Kathy and Alvin's house. While Nathan and his grandparents slept soundly, little Max had other ideas. Now, unless you have a child who can sleep through anything, for the most part, from our experience, a one-year-old sleep schedule can be a bit unpredictable. And breaking a baby's bedtime routine can be disastrous, or even sleeping somewhere else that's not their bed can be challenging too. Max was up and down all through the night, and at one point, Jennifer gave up the battle and decided to take him back home where he could settle. And honestly, she was probably hoping for some sleep herself. 
Not wanting to wake her other son, Jennifer left Nathan at Alvin and Kathy's home with little hesitation. She had no reservations about leaving him with his grandparents, as he had visited countless times before. They were loving parents after all. Now, on the morning of June 30th, after a sleepless night, Jennifer woke up with Max and called her mother, Kathy. But Kathy didn't answer. This was rather unusual, but Jennifer figured that Kathy was enjoying some quality time with Nathan and wasn't paying attention to her phone. At the time, Jennifer didn't think much of it, so she hopped back into the car with Max and they headed back to her parents' house. She let herself in with Max on her hip and was immediately greeted by a horrific crime scene. There were bloodstains in every room, on the walls, on the carpet, and on the bedsheets. Shocked and horrified, Jennifer searched the home for any sign of her family and called her husband, Rod. She explained to him that her family had been murdered and the bodies were not there. And then from there, they contacted the police. Jennifer kept searching, desperately hoping that she'd find Nathan somewhere amongst the chaos of the home. She only left him a few hours ago, and now he was nowhere to be found and had somehow been wrapped up in someone's twisted murder plot. Jennifer later described the scene saying, quote, I immediately saw pools of blood and hand marks of blood on the wall, end quote. Jennifer didn't know at the time, but the handprint she spotted in the hallway had actually belonged to her son, Nathan. That handprint proved to be extremely important in the investigation that followed, and it gave the family a glimmer of hope. Whatever had taken place that night, Nathan had been alive at some point during the struggle. Law enforcement also wasn't sure if the blood was even his. With the hope that Nathan had somehow survived, police issued an Amber Alert, which was the longest-running Amber Alert in Alberta to date. Oddly, the bloody handprint was a beam of hope in the stomach-churning weeks that followed. Could you imagine walking into that room and seeing the blood and everything? It just would be completely, you would be tunnel visioned. You wouldn't believe like any of this is real. And not finding your son, that would be so frightening and seeing bloody handprints and just not knowing and who could have done this. And just there's just so many questions. Yeah. And then with your mind just processing like my son, my parents, it's. It would be very hard to stomach. Yeah. The Calgary police chief, Rick Hansen, led the investigation that followed the gruesome assault. Detectives combed through the Lickness home for any clues as to where the three family members were and who had taken them. After several days without any leads, law enforcement spoke to someone who had seen a suspicious car in the area the night of the assault. Police released a photo of a truck, a green Ford F-150. Now, this photo was very helpful in the investigation because it quickly became recognizable to a woman named Patty Garland, Alan Lickness's wife. When Patty came across the photo of the suspicious truck, she had a horrible feeling that she had seen the vehicle before. You see, her parents owned a green Ford F-150, which was driven almost exclusively by her brother, Douglas Garland. Now, the day before the gruesome assault, she had driven to her parents' house, where 54-year-old Douglas had moved after several run-ins with the law. The truck had been parked outside of the home the day of her visit, and it looked identical to the truck in the photo. 
Could Douglas, her own brother, be involved in the disappearance of her in-laws and nephew? There was only one way to know for sure. Patty asked her son to take a picture of the truck and send it to the police. So just so that it makes sense, Patty was in a relationship with Alan, who is Alvin's son. And Alvin is the grandfather who was murdered. Okay, so it was Alan's wife. I don't know if they were actually married. I think it was more of like a common law thing, even though that doesn't really happen oh, anymore. Oh, but like when you date for so many years and you're just Yeah, I think that they married. were just in this like long-term relationship. Oh. And then, like we said, Patty was sisters to this Douglas guy who owned this suspicious vehicle. Okay. After matching Douglas's vehicle with the one that was seen outside of the Lickness property, police brought Douglas in for questioning. And this was easy enough because Douglas was already in jail for identity theft. Throughout the interrogation, he denied knowing anything or having any involvement in the crime. A few days later, he was released on a bail of $750, but not for long. As a condition of this bail, he was required to spend a certain length of time in transitional housing. But he had other plans. Now, unknown to Douglas, officers were tracking his every move, and they caught him on camera as he returned to his family's property. By that following Monday, he was arrested again. Infrared video that was taken by a police helicopter showed Douglas attempting to escape through a dense forest on his parents' property. In the footage, police covertly surrounded the suspect before ambushing and handcuffing him. This time, the police charged him with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Alvin and Kathy Lickness and second-degree murder of Nathan O'Brien. Sadly, as they pieced together the physical evidence, the investigators came to a tragic conclusion. In a press conference, police chief Rick Hansen said, quote, The preponderance of evidence is such that it has led our investigators to believe that they are dead, end quote. Nathan had been alive in the hallway at some point during the struggle. However, the alarming amount of blood found throughout the home led investigators to believe that Nathan and his grandparents had not survived long after that night, and he certainly had not survived the two weeks following the assault. This was a huge leap forward in the investigation, but police chief Rick Hansen had mixed emotions about Douglas's arrest. He said, quote, I think it's safe to say that even as the days went by, there's always a hope. There's always a glimmer of hope. And unfortunately, with the laying of charges, we've taken that hope away from the family, end quote. By arresting the suspect for the murders of Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan, the police were admitting that the three victims were presumed to be dead. However, they had not located the bodies of the victims. Up until the arrest, the public had believed that at least one of the three victims was being held hostage, either for ransom money or because the killer had a change of heart. And of course, everyone had hoped that the surviving member was Nathan. Now, the public and the family of the victims had to face the fact that Nathan was never coming home. Until the trial, Douglas's parents were tight-lipped about the investigation. It wasn't until after his arrest that his mother, Doreen, made a statement. At his murder trial, she said that when she mentioned the murders after watching the news, her son avoided the subject, saying that he didn't want to talk about it. In a different statement, she confessed that this avoidant behavior was normal for him, so she didn't think much of it. 
In a statement from his father, Archie, it was revealed that Douglas and the Licknesses had a tense relationship because the Licknesses owed Douglas money. However, Archie added that he'd never seen his son commit a violent act. A child and his grandparents were brutally murdered, and Jennifer and her one-year-old son, Max, had only survived by some uncanny twist of fate. The world watched the case unfold in stunned silence, but in the public's mind were the same two questions. Who was Douglas Garland, and why had he really killed Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan? So let's talk a little bit about the accused, Douglas Garland. At the time of the murders, 54-year-old Douglas lived with his elderly parents on their farm in Airdrie, Alberta. His mother, Doreen, who was in her 80s, described Douglas in her testimony. Quote, he's my son. I love him. I've always loved him. She continued by saying, I think he's a really unhappy man. Doreen believed that while Douglas was unhappy, he was very intelligent as he was always reading a book, but he was antisocial and would never discuss his problems with her. She went on to explain that Douglas had studied at the University of Alberta's medical school for a few months before suffering from a mental breakdown that he refused to talk about or discuss with her. Oddly, before his departure, he was elected class president and allegedly he was actually expelled for cheating. After that, he had moved back to his family's farm and seemed to settle into a slower, more reclusive lifestyle. Now, Douglas was arrested a few times, several times actually, for weapons, violation, assault. And in 1992, at the age of 33, he was caught running a meth lab on his parents' farm. Somehow he got out on bail and then he fled to British Columbia, where he lived under a stolen identity for seven years. The identity was that of a 14-year-old boy who had died in a car crash in 1980. Douglas collected unemployment, and he hid from law enforcement under this stolen name. How do you even get away with that? I have no clue. Seven years? And like we said, he collected unemployment? That's just crazy. Yet leading up to the brutal murders, his legal woes seemed to be behind him. He hadn't been arrested since 2000 for a drug charge, and he attended weekly psychiatric visits. His psychiatrist even wrote in his record that Douglas had little violence potential to others. If this psychiatrist would have known the brutality Douglas was capable of, perhaps this story would have ended differently. Wait, so did they ever find out the reason why he killed the three family members? So, yeah, let's get into that. Douglas Garland was steadfast when he entered the courtroom on January 16th, 2017, and he showed a little emotion. By then, as more evidence was brought forth, he was facing three, not two, charges of first-degree murder, as the second-degree murder of Nathan had been upgraded to murder in the first degree. Douglas was read the charges against him. The judge, David Gates, asked Douglas how he pleaded, and his answer was not guilty. This was perhaps unsurprising, but his behavior in the courtroom afterwards was totally unexpected. The accused sat in the prisoner's box, seemingly detached from reality, unemotional and uncaring. His demeanor was that of a student at a lecture, as he was squinting his eyes and took notes while he listened to each testimony. 
In total, there were about five weeks worth of evidence for the court and the jury to discuss. And that's when the opening for the prosecution, Vicki Faulkner, answered a question that had been on everyone's mind and Ricky's since Douglas's arrest. Why had he brutally attacked and murdered Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan? The motive behind the crime was as simple as it was absurd. Douglas had been stewing for years about an old feud between him and his sister's father-in-law, Alvin Lickness. Douglas felt disrespected, he felt cheated and swindled, and he blamed Alvin. Taking the stand, Alan Lickness, Douglas's brother-in-law, explained that years ago, he and Alvin had approached Douglas and asked him to help them engineer a new product that the father-son duo had been working on, an experimental pump for the oil and gas industry. Remember Alvin's passion for invention? Well, this was another one of his creations, another attempt to make life easier and more efficient, and they recruited Douglas to assist them in this new venture. Okay, but why Douglas? Yeah, because he wasn't an engineer. He had studied medicine during his one semester stint at the University of Alberta. So why would they care what he thought? Well, there was a simple answer for that, too. Douglas was family. Perhaps Alvin and Alan saw in Douglas the intelligence that his mother, Doreen, had bragged about. Perhaps this was their way of trying to welcome him into their family. After all, family was everything to Alvin and Kathy. Now, whatever their reasons were, Alvin officially hired Douglas to work on the new invention. Specifically, he would help with the electrical engineering of the device. After hammering out the details, Alvin finally registered the patent for his new pump, but failed to include Douglas in the paperwork. With that, the seeds of resentment were sown. Infuriated, Douglas believed that he deserved some share of the new patent, and tensions grew between the two factions until they could not be ignored any longer. Oh, so this was all a greed thing. Yeah, it was all about greed. The Licknesses had a family business where they implemented and sold Alvin's inventions, and it truly was a family affair. Douglas may have only been related to the Licknesses' family through marriage, but that didn't mean that he couldn't have a place at the table. Despite his misgivings with the family, Douglas continued to work for the family business until he took resentment a bit too far. In 2010, three years after hiring Douglas, Alvin fired him. Douglas had stopped answering his phone, which made him impossible to work with. After that, there was no repairing the damage between Douglas and the Licknesses. While the Licknesses were able to close that chapter, Douglas's resentment grew. In the years that followed, from the outside, Douglas seemed to close that painful chapter as well. But when the Licknesses and their grandson disappeared, Alan had a sinking feeling about the old grudge. He remembered how upset his brother-in-law had been about the patent, and he had passed that information onto the police. And after Patty tipped off law enforcement to her brother's truck, it looked like the police had nailed down their prime suspect before they even fully investigated the crime scene. However, law enforcement felt that a years-old grudge over a water pump patent was a weak motive. Douglas's gripes with the Lickness family had started years ago, almost a decade ago, in fact. So why would he suddenly decide to strike now? 
Because it sounds like he never forgot about it. Right. The prosecution faced that same dilemma in the courtroom, but they came to a conclusion that was difficult to refute. Douglas had been upset and angry with Alvin for so long, and this was a simple case of now or never. Alvin and Kathy were moving away, and if he didn't act fast, he'd miss his opportunity to get revenge forever. Knowing that he was running out of time, Douglas had decided to strike and had broken into the Licknesses' family home that night, likely not knowing that Nathan was in there too. Now, just a warning, the next segment contains graphic details of the crime scene. Listener discretion is advised. Now, without their bodies to examine, it was the victim's blood that told the story of what had happened that tragic evening. According to investigators, the night may have gone something like this. Upon being attacked by Douglas, Alvin had put up a fight. Alvin's blood was found throughout the home, and he had clearly been struck by some sort of blunt instrument in several different rooms. Alvin was likely trying to subdue his attacker and save his family. Kathy had been lying on the floor of the spare bedroom when she'd been attacked. It's possible that Alvin had already succumbed to his injuries by then, and that Kathy had rushed to the bedroom to try to protect Nathan. And that left Nathan, who was still lying in bed when he was hit with the blunt object and bled onto the mattress. Whoever attacked them had then started moving their bodies around and tried to clean up some of the blood. The kitchen walls showed obvious signs of someone trying to clean up the mess, but it must have been fairly obvious to the killer that there was no feasible way to wipe down the crime scene without spending too much time there and getting caught. Investigators also found a bloody handprint on the closet door in the spare bedroom. They couldn't pinpoint whose handprint this was, but DNA tests reveal that the blood from the print belonged to both Kathy and Nathan. The same could be said for the small handprint that had given everyone so much hope that Nathan was still alive. But forensic evidence at the next crime scene revealed everyone's fate. The prosecution then argued that Douglas had taken Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan back to his parents' farm in Airdrie, where he planned to dispose of them. Their blood and their DNA were found on a saw and some meat hooks that Douglas claimed that he just bought. More blood and DNA evidence, as well as partial remains, bones, and a small tooth, were found in a large burn barrel. One of the neighbors claimed to have seen a huge fire burning on their farm that day. A man by the name of Donald Dykow, a paramedic, testified that he opened his garage door the day of the burn, and he immediately smelled a heavy plastic burning smell. In a cross-examination, he admitted that he hadn't smelled burning flesh. One would assume a paramedic would know what burning flesh smelled like. So this could have hurt the prosecution's case. However, they had more on Douglas and their next bit of evidence was harder to dispute. Now, as the old saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And by some twist of fate, the prosecution had one picture that might just incriminate Douglas beyond any reasonable doubt. Miraculously, a survey plane that was mapping out the area flew over the farm that day after the murders. And in doing so, the plane had captured a photo that would define this case. The image clearly depicts the partially nude bodies of Alvin and Kathy lying face down in the grass. 
During the trial, the prosecutor, Vicki Faulkner, drew the jury to another part of the photo. She said, you will see a small figure curled up on the grass. Faulkner then tells the jury in the rest of the courtroom that this figure is Nathan O'Brien. The prosecution placed Nathan at the scene of the cleanup. And with the tragic discovery of the small tooth in the burn barrel, they believe that Douglas disposed of his body too on the farm that day. Now to seal the deal, the prosecution presented digital evidence that they found on Douglas's computer showing that he had been working on the idea of killing Alvin and Kathy for years. Searches like how to kill without emotion, how much does it take to cause a concussion, and most painful torture had all been found on Douglas's computer. And these searches had started back in 2013. Also found on his computer were documents on how to conduct an autopsy and how to pick locks. Douglas had likely started plotting the murders once he had realized that Alvin and Kathy were moving and he was running out of time. Now to paint a picture of Douglas as a person, the prosecution read out the long list of items recovered from Douglas's farm, which included things like a straitjacket, adult diapers, a set of prosthetic breasts, and two dummies. In retaliation, Kim Ross, Douglas's defense lawyer, argued that the prosecution couldn't actually charge Douglas with murder when they couldn't even place him at the crime scene. Not a single piece of DNA, he said. Not one drop of blood, no saliva, not one strand of hair belonging to Douglas were ever found at the crime scene, meaning that the prosecution couldn't place Douglas there at the time of the murders beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the jury was left to deliberate. It took them a little over nine hours to reach a guilty verdict on all three charges of first-degree murder. It was now official. Douglas was guilty of the murders of Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan. The prosecution, the defense, friends, and family were back in the courtroom the next day to determine Douglas's sentence. Because the incident took place in Calgary and he was found guilty in Calgary, his crimes automatically came with a life sentence. Now the court had to decide if he would serve those sentences consecutively. If not, Douglas could potentially be back on the streets within a couple of decades with good behavior and the right lawyer. Now, luckily, 10 out of the 12 jurors recommended that Douglas receive consecutive sentences, and Judge David Gates agreed. He ordered that Douglas would have to serve 75 years before he would be eligible for parole, meaning that Douglas would be 129 years old before he would ever be allowed out of prison. Though, for many, Douglas having to live behind bars for the rest of his life was simply not justice enough. Within hours of starting his sentence at the Calgary Remand Center, a group of inmates jumped and physically assaulted Douglas. His injuries weren't life-threatening, but they were severe enough that Douglas had to be transported to a local hospital to receive treatment. This set the tone for what awaited Douglas for the rest of his life. But it wasn't quite the end of his time in court. So Douglas appealed his sentence and he lost in 2021. But that unfortunately wasn't the last time the Lickness family would see the inside of a courtroom. Still reeling from everything and trying to make sense of what had happened to their parents and their son, both the surviving Licknesses and the O'Briens had to go to the courtroom again over something truly heartbreaking. 
A lawyer representing several media outlets had petitioned to have the survey photo showing the bodies of Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan released to the public. They argued that the public had a right to see the picture so that they could get a well-rounded view of the case and everything that it entailed. Rod O'Brien, Nathan's father, went to the court to argue against the release of this picture. He had to face it in the original trial already, and the thought of his surviving children stumbling across it one day was too much for him to bear. On the stand, he described the impact that Nathan's death had on his family, and it didn't paint a pretty picture. Out of everyone, Rod said that it was actually Nathan's older brother, Luke, who had taken the loss the hardest. Taking the stand, Rod described what Luke was going through. He doesn't like to talk about it. He's living a life without Nathan, and at times I see him depressed. Rod argued that releasing that picture of Nathan's body would only bring back all of that trauma at a very vulnerable stage in Luke's life. He was a teenager, a difficult time for anyone. And by putting that picture out there, the court would be opening Luke up to the possibility of unknowingly and unwillingly being exposed to it. Luke is going to be reaccessing that photograph, the grief, the depression, which opens the door to suicide. And he argued the same for his youngest son, Max, who would have been too young to really remember Nathan and would undoubtedly come across that image of him if it was ever released publicly. They don't want to see their brother lying in a field, he said. In his statement, Rod explained that he also wanted to prevent his brother-in-law, Jeff Lickness, from having to see the gruesome picture again. Rod described what Jeff had endured since the loss of his parents in another heartbreaking statement. Quote, I would say Jeff is trying to get back into a full life, but I do see a change. He is more introverted and staying away. He's just trying like the rest of us, but he has no one to talk to. It's going to harm my boys and us. It puts us at risk of developing as a family and risks the development of our children. End quote. David Gates, the same judge who presided over Douglas Garland's trial, listened to the testimony both from Rod O'Brien and the lawyer who was representing the prying media outlets. It was ultimately his decision as to whether the picture of Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan's bodies would be released in its entirety. Thankfully, he decided against it. While the media could not post the original image, the judge would allow the media to publish the image as long as the bodies were blurred or entirely removed from the photo. Though Rod was forced to reopen the wounds Douglas inflicted on his family, his statements and the court's decision protected Luke and Max from ever having to unwittingly see the image for themselves. And for now, it looks like the Lickness family's time in court is over. And we hope that this marks the end of a tragic chapter in the family's lives. In an effort to shine a positive light on Nathan's memory, his parents, Rod and Jennifer, founded the Nathan O'Brien Children Foundation in 2015. The foundation's purpose is to assist disadvantaged children by funding charities and charitable projects. Their mission is as follows. Our foundation is committed to honoring the memory of Nathan O'Brien and his legacy of compassion and kindness by helping improve the lives of children, giving them the opportunity to live, hope, and pursue their dreams. As parents, it is important that Nathan's spirit lives on and continues to inspire good deeds in the world. The Nathan O'Brien Children's Foundation is honored to work with other dedicated charities to be a part of a community that wants to make a positive difference in the world. 
while their deaths were untimely, Nathan and the Lignesses leave behind a legacy of compassion and hope. Their marks on the community will last forever in the kind deeds of Alvin and Kathy and the bright, unforgettable smile of Nathan O'Brien. So, Ricky, what did you think about that episode? It was interesting. I think what stuck out to me most, though, is like they had the evidence from the airplane flying over and then they had what it, it took a picture like every what like four seconds or something like that. Yeah, three or four seconds. But like to have that evidence of the bodies lined up. At that exact time, like whenever crap was going down, that's crazy. But that gives like a sense of clarity that is just like, okay, this is what happened. Yeah, like photographic evidence of the actual crime scene happening. Like what are the chances? Like how how often does a plane go and survey the area? Like, I don't know how often they do that, but (laughs) yeah, it's kind of crazy. All right, so that was a pretty good episode. Oh, we have uh, new patrons, though. We do. So before we jump off here, let's shout out two new patrons that we have this week. This week, let's welcome Christy and Tara. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you, and thank you so much for the Apple subscribers. Unfortunately, we don't get your name, but I know you're enjoying the ad-free listens. and I know there's a ton of new ones. So we really appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. You keep the show running. Also, you can get a free trial of the Apple subscription. So Crime Salad Plus, it's only $1.99. So. Wait, you get a free trial? I didn't yeah, know you, that. Can get, you can get like seven days free or something oh, like that. Cool. And then, uh, you know, you get ad free and bonus content and all of that stuff uh, for $1.99. So it's a lot cheaper than most podcasts. We try to make it. So it's if you don't like ads, you know. It's worth it. Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah, definitely do that. And we'll see you next week. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.